So as we go into the book of Romans today, we're going to be in Romans chapter 3, uh, beginning in about verse 21, if you want to turn to that. Uh, and we're going to look at just six verses today. Uh, if you were here last week, we looked at two and a half chapters, so greatly reduced number of verses. Uh, but the verses that we're going to look at, I think, are probably the most central verses in the book of Romans. There may be one other set that I would kind of put on that sample, but these are the most central verses in the book of Romans. And therefore, it's the most central verses or the concept of truth that we find in our, in, throughout the entire Bible. And so I encourage you as we look into this. And so if you, and here's why it's kind of central, I'll kind of give you this kind of big picture view, but if you're a Christian, if you would say, I'm a believer in Christ, I'm a follower of Christ, these verses are essential. Because if you forget these verses, then you will very quickly move down a path of legalism for yourself and judgmentalism towards other people. And if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you're investigating things or kind of seeking things out, these verses, these six verses, have the heart of the gospel, the heart of what it means to be and become a Christian. And so I'm excited to unpack these six verses. Um, so let's pray and then we will um, jump in. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this morning. Lord, thank you just for the worship and how it just touched the heart and touched the mind and was just so full of truth. And God, as we look into your word this morning, I pray that you would speak to us from it, that we would understand the message that you have for each of us individually this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you were here last week, um, I started by sharing a story about my son, Riley. He is uh, a year out of college. He's in his first year out of college. But about six and a half years ago, he was diagnosed with diabetes. And, and I shared that last week and how that diagnosis was some of the hardest news, maybe even the hardest news, that he and our family have ever received. But at the same time, it was news that was incredibly helpful. It was hard to receive, but it was very helpful because now we understood why it was he'd been sick, but also what he needed to do in, the, in his future in order to kind of deal with the disease of diabetes. But there was a part of the story that I left out that I didn't tell you um, last week. And it came, I think, about three, four, maybe five weeks after Riley had been diagnosed. And I was in the lobby here at church, and there were some high school kids who were talking. And I overheard a high school kid say this with great ignorance. And he, I don't, he wasn't talking about Riley. I think he was just talking out of the wrong end of his body. But he said this. Sorry. Um, he said, people with diabetes can cure themselves of diabetes. And I was like, I, I couldn't believe what I had heard. And I was still learning about diabetes. I'm like, is that true? And and here's the thing is that diabetes is a disease of the pancreas, that your pancreas doesn't have the ability to break down sugars, and so it causes all these other effects in your life. And, and so when we talk about someone with type 1 diabetes, it can't be cured by what we do. You can do 10 push-ups a day or 100 push-ups a day, and that doesn't cure it. You can run a mile a day or 10 miles a day, and that doesn't cure it. You can eat all vegetables and just eat like a rabbit, and that doesn't cure it. 
that there is no cure that a person can do. There's nothing that a person can do in and of themselves to be cured from diabetes. And I share that because the same is true with what we talked about last week. We talked about the fact that all of us have a sin problem. That all of us, because we sin against God, because we sin against others, we are deserving of God's wrath. Every person is tainted with sin, whether it's because we reject God, because we judge those who reject God, because we try and be good enough with our religiousness, or we're just part of the human race. None of us can escape God's wrath in the sense that we all deserve God's wrath. Here's how we put it last week. This is Romans chapter 3, verse 10. It says, No one is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. So he uses this term here. He says, no one is righteous. Righteous means to have right standing before God. And in the same way that there's no way for Riley to cure himself of diabetes, there is no way for us to cure ourselves of the sin problem that we all have. That we can't stop sinning. If we, I'm like, even if you start right now, I'm not going to sin anymore. You couldn't go very long without sinning. And there's nothing that we can do in terms of good works. We can't go to church enough. We can't pray enough. We can't read the Bible enough. We can't, we can't, we can't do enough good things in order to become righteous. I want to illustrate this for you this morning, and then we'll get to kind of the message. But so this is uh, a little illustration that I uh, brought today. And this kind of represents three different people's lives. Okay, and then this bottle that I brought represents sin. And, and I need to take a pause for a second. So you can't tell from where you are. And Stacy, I'm sorry, but I brought three of these glasses, but one of them broke. Yeah. Like you see, so I don't know. I'm like, I, I said to Ben before church, I'm like, I need some help interpreting what the Holy Spirit is telling me here. Like, is he saying only use two glasses? Is he saying, is the Holy Spirit saying we're all broken people? I don't know. I have two good glasses and a broken glass, but they're all about to get in bad shape anyway. But you see, uh, these three glasses represent what we might say is three different types of people, right? And so the first type of person, this is someone who sins a lot. Like, this is a person, and this, this is my little bottle of sin here. Um, and, and we look at this, and we go, okay, well, this is a person who, like, they just sin a lot. They do a lot of bad things in life, and they keep on kind of just, they don't like God. They don't like people. They're angry with people. You know, when we talk about don't hang out with the bad crowd, or my friend, my kids got involved with that crowd, like, this is that crowd type of people, right? And so sin upon sin upon sin, right? And maybe you know some people like that. Maybe you'd say, hey, that, that was me or that is me. And then there's people who are, this is kind of the average Joe type of person that not necessarily actively against God, but, but still like we don't, that person doesn't follow what God wants, doesn't necessarily do what God wants all the time, but maybe not actively rebelling against God, but, but definitely life is tainted with sin. And then over here, we have kind of the, the goody two-shoes type of person, right? And they don't sin a whole lot. You know, they, they don't cuss except like when they hit their finger with a hammer. And they don't, you know, they don't speak ill of people, at least to their face. And, you know, and so they just, they kind of have just 
a little bit of sin, and they're just, you know, everybody looks, man, he's such a good person, right? And so you kind of have the different ways that it is. And so, but we look at this, and all three of these people, no matter which category you might put yourself in, all three of these are tainted with sin. Now you say, well, and, and this is just sort of the way that we think in life. We're like, well, you know, if, if we could add good works, if I could just add some good works to this person's life, then the sin would go away, but it doesn't go away. Or if I could add a little bit of good works here, it'll go away. If I add good works there, it's going to bubble up above the cracks. So. And he's already doing a good job. I mean, he's kind of a goody two-shoes anyway. So we'll just, we'll leave him alone for now. But you see, this is the, the dilemma that we're in, that we can't fix our unrighteousness problem. There's nothing that we can do in and of ourselves. But there's a solution. Verse 21 says this, but now the righteousness of God. And if you have your Bible, underline that word, but now. Because you know, sometimes we get bad news, bad news, bad news, and they say, but there's a solution. And what follows after this is the solution that God has given to the problem of our unrighteousness. And so what we're going to do this morning it's kind of going to be a four-parter, if you will, is first we're going to kind of understand God's plan for how we might be able to become righteous. And then I'm going to tell a story about how God kind of receives us back. And then we're going to take communion together. And then we're going to sing about this truth that we've talked about this morning. So that's where we're going this morning, so you can kind of see where that is. So verse 21 says this. It says, But now the righteousness of God has been, man, has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. It says, But now the righteousness of God has been made available to us. So there is a way to be righteous. And it says that God has made that way. But it doesn't come from our work. It comes from something that God has done. Then he continues on in verse 22. It says, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So it says that there is a righteousness, but the righteousness that we can have comes not from us, but it comes from God. And then he tells us how it says, through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. That's how we become righteous. It's not by doing good things. It's not by stopping sin in our lives. It comes from a righteousness that comes from Jesus Christ, from God. And then he has this little phrase. He says, for there is no distinction for all have sinned. Now, if you're to look and understand the book of Romans, what Paul is doing is he's, trying, he's explaining salvation. He's explaining kind of the beginning A to Z of salvation. But he's doing it in such a way that he's talking to those people who are Jewish, but also to those people who are Gentiles. So Jews are those that believe in the Old Testament, the law, the prophets, everything in the Old Testament, looking forward to, to the Messiah. And also he's speaking to the Gentiles. And what he's saying is that 
all have sinned without distinction. Jews sin and Gentiles sin. But he's also saying that everybody gets into the kingdom of heaven the same way, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile. And we take that and we look at that today in our world, in our, in our culture, and the same is true. That everyone sins, whether you grew up in a church or a mosque or in India or in Pakistan or in California or in Ohio or wherever you grew up, no matter what faith you came from, no matter what faith you didn't come from, agnostic, atheist, everybody sins. But everybody has the opportunity to be justified, to be made righteous through Jesus Christ. Then he continues on in verse 4. Excuse me, verse 24. He says, uh, And all fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So he says that all people can be justified, can be made right in God's sight. To be justified means that God looks at you and says, You are not guilty. You no longer have to serve the punishment of your sin. Now, it's interesting. In in looking at this, I learned something um, new, and I've looked at this verse a bunch of times. I just want to share this with you, and it's kind of neat, but it really kind of brings a couple things together. I'm going to get a little bit nerdy, a little bit into the kind of languages here. Um, But the word for righteousness, okay, it's the word, and I had to kind of phonetically put this on my paper because I don't speak Greek, but the, uh, the word for righteousness is dikanos une. Okay, spell that however you want. Dikanos une, right? And it means perfect. It means without blemish. It means righteousness without any problems, right? Then in verse 24, it says that people can be, it says, are justified by his grace. The word for justified is this. It's dikayo, right? You go, okay, why are you telling me this? Why are you just being all nerdy with Greek? And here's the thing is, those two words are the same word, except one is a noun and one is a verb, okay? And so when it says you can be justified, what that means is you can be made righteous. Or if we were to kind of put it, it's not a word, but it's righteousnessified, you can be righteousnessified. You can be made righteous by placing your faith in Jesus Christ. And so when someone places their faith in Jesus Christ, they are justified. A way that I've heard it put, it's so kind of corny, but I like it anyway. It's memorable. It's just as if I had never sinned. Justifies just if I had never sinned. That's how God sees us. Then it continues on in verse 25. It says this. It says, Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. So what this is saying is that those, those who reject God and we talked about this a couple weeks ago, those who reject God, those who judge others, those who uh, are just part of mankind, those who are trying religiously to get to God, those who reject God are all deserving of God's wrath, right? We all deserve God's wrath. But when a penalty is due, right, 
God can't just say, well, you know what? We're just going to forget about it. Never mind. Don't, Don't worry about it. It would be like in a courtroom, somebody is found guilty of some heinous crime, right? And it's 20 years to life is the, is the crime. And the judge goes, you know what? Not a big deal. You look like a nice kid. You look sort of sorry. Just go on about your way. The, the justice is not served in that situation. And so we have this problem with us And that we are deserving of God's wrath. And so the way that God took care of that was through this big word in the book of Romans. Is propitiation by his blood. And what that means is that Jesus Christ paid the penalty for your sin. So the wrath of God needed to be fulfilled. It needed to be poured out because of the sin in our lives. But God poured out his wrath on Jesus Christ. So that's why we have the phrase, Jesus Christ died for my sins. Jesus Christ died for your sins. That was when he took the wrath of God upon himself. So a man named John Murray who wrote in this um, excerpt called The Atonement, he says this. He said, God loved the objects of his wrath, that's you and I, so much that he gave his own son to that end, that he, that's Jesus, by his blood should make provision for the removal of his wrath. That in Jesus' death on the cross, God's wrath and God's love came together in perfect symmetry. That his wrath was poured out on Jesus Christ who died for our sins, and his love was poured out, and that we now have an opportunity to be made right with God. Then it finishes with this. It says, It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. That God was both just in handing out the punishment of sin, but he was also the justifier in that God became flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. Tim Keller puts it this way. It says, God does not set aside, set his justice aside. He turns it on himself. The wonder of the cross is that in the very same stroke, it satisfied both the love of God and the justice of God. That's what happened on the cross. So the penalty of our sin has been paid by Jesus Christ. God provided a way, but there's still a step on our part to get right with God. And we see it sprinkled out throughout all six of these verses. Verse 22, it says, through faith. Verse 22, it says, all who believe. Verse 24, it says, for his grace as a gift. Verse 25, received by faith. Verse 26, the one who has faith in Jesus. That our response is to place our faith in Jesus Christ. And when we place our faith in Jesus Christ, there is an exchange that takes place. That I receive Christ into my life, and when that happens, that means I give my sin to Jesus, and he dies on the cross for my sin. But then the other part of the exchange is I gain his righteousness. That Jesus Christ is the only person ever to have lived an absolutely perfect, sin-free 
life. And so there's an exchange. He gets my sin, and then I get his righteous life. And so now, when God looks at me, if I have received Christ, he sees not my sin, but he sees Christ in me. He sees Christ's perfect life, perfectly righteous life. So I want to take us back to this illustration. That people kind of have different levels of sin in their lives, but all of us are tainted with sin. But what we've learned from these verses is that if we receive Christ, if we place our faith in Jesus Christ, then we are made new. We are made righteous. And so this bottle represents Jesus Christ. And so when Jesus Christ, when you invite him into our lives, it makes us pure. If you're the average person doing some sin, some okay, the same thing happens. We are made pure. And even if you feel like this is your life, that you have lived your life running from God, terrible things, fighting with God, never given God a thought, never set foot in a church, the same is true, the same amount. Jesus Christ coming into our lives makes us righteous. And so now, when God looks at your life, he doesn't see your sin, he sees you as righteous. You are declared righteous. Does that mean you stop sinning? No. But all the sins that you commit from that moment in your life to the end of your life when you sin, it is still covered by the righteousness of Jesus. It's been said, and Ben mentioned this a couple weeks ago, quoting a guy named Tim Keller, and I love this. He says, The gospel is so simple that a child can wait in it, and so complex that an elephant can take a bath in it. And I want to give you the simplicity of the gospel, because the gospel is for everyone. It's not just for Americans. It's not just for church people. The gospel is for everyone. Everyone is invited. Here's the first truth about the gospel, is everyone is invited. Everyone is invited. It doesn't matter if you grew up in church you didn't grow up in church. It doesn't matter where you were raised. It doesn't matter what faith you had or what faith you didn't have. Everyone is invited to receive Christ. And here's the second truth, is everyone gets in the same way. In other words, everyone gets into heaven the same way. Those who are righteous before God go to heaven. And everybody gets in the same way, the same way by receiving Christ, by placing your faith in Jesus Christ to make you righteous. And the third is this, is that everyone can meet the requirement. And I love that about the way that God has designed things. Because it's never too late. You can have lived your whole life in rebellion against God. But yet when you receive Christ into your life, He makes you new. He makes you clean. He makes you righteous. So you could live your whole life apart from God and then on your deathbed say, I repent of my sins. I place my faith in Jesus Christ. Everybody can get in. And here's the thing, is I know that a lot of people struggle with faith and struggle with faith versus doubt. Like, I wish I had more faith. I wish I didn't doubt 
as much as I do. I wish I had more faith like this person or that person. Or, or maybe you look at people in the Bible and say, I wish I had that kind of faith. But here's the beauty of this. When we talk about faith in Jesus Christ, it is not the amount of your faith. It is the object of your faith. It's not how much faith you have. It's what is the object. You are relying on the object, not the amount of your faith. You know, if I were to go down to Jaeger Airport and I were to strap on some feathers and some wires and I, I could flap as hard as I could and jump off the end of the runway. I believe that I can fly off the end of this runway and I jump, I'm going to fall. doesn't matter how much faith I have in flapping my wings and the feathers that I've attached them. They're arms and they're not wings, by the way. Um, but it doesn't matter how much faith I have because I'm putting my faith in the wrong object. But I could go down to Jaeger Airport and I could see a plane there that little plane that flies from here to Atlanta, it's called a Bombardier CRJ-900. I'm like, I'm not sure that plane is going to help me to get there. I'm not sure that plane is going to make it, but I'm getting on that plane, and I'm sitting in that seat, and I'm buckling my seatbelt in, <clears throat> and that plane is going to take off, and it's going to get me to Atlanta. Not because of the amount of my faith, but because of the object of my faith. And the object of your faith is Jesus Christ. And I hope that gives you encouragement. Verse 22, I want to read it to you again. It says, The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. There is no distinction. That's how we get the righteousness of God, by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. I want to tell you a quick story. There was a guy, and uh, he was a dad, and he had two sons. And one of his sons, the younger son, said, you know, Dad, I don't like living on the farm with you. I want to go live my own life. And, and could I have my inheritance? I mean, you're going to die anyway. It's going to come my way anyway. Could I have the money that I would normally get when you die? Could I just have that right now? And interestingly enough, the dad says, okay. And he gives him his portion of the inheritance. And so this son, he goes and he lives wild living. Goes to Vegas, goes to that kind of place and just sows his wild oats. Spends his money on gambling and women and cars and all that kind of stuff. Just spends it all. But then the economy turns bad. There's a famine. There's, things don't go right. And so he's got to find a job so he can eat. And so he finds a terrible job, but it's one that will pay him a little bit. His job is to feed pigs. And this young man is so hungry that he wants to eat the food that he's feeding to the pigs, but he can't because that would be stealing from the farmer. He's that hungry. So he's in the middle of this mess of his life. And then this guy remembers his dad. But you know what? The hired hands at my dad's farm, they have a better life than I do. And so he decides, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go, and he writes this apology speech to his father. He says, I'm going to go and apologize to my dad and see if he'll let me be one of his hired hands. So he writes the apology speech. He goes, and even before he gets to the farm, his dad comes running for him because he's been looking for him. And he starts to give his apology speech, and his dad says, no, no, no. 
you have returned. You ran from me, and now I'm running to you, and you have returned. So it says he put a ring on his finger. He put a robe on him, showing his back of the family. And then he killed the fatted calf. He threw a huge party for his son. And he welcomed him back. That's the story of the prodigal son. You may have heard that story before. But that is our story. That we run from God and we run from God. And then we come to our senses and we go, God loves me. God wants me. And God's plan is the best for me. And so we return from whatever pig slop we've been in back into a right relationship with God by placing our faith in Him, in Jesus Christ. And I share that story with you because some of you this morning, as you look at your life, you've been running from God. He's had no place in your life. And it's time to return to God. And for some of you, you've been trying as best you can to be good enough, to be good enough, to be good enough. But we've learned last week and this week that we cannot be good enough to earn God's favor. If you're here this morning and you want to place your faith in Jesus Christ, if you want to be made righteous, not because of what you have done, but because of him and his righteousness, I encourage you to take that step this morning. It's just basically expressing that to him. A prayer that you would pray would say something like this. I know that I cannot be good enough to achieve the righteousness that you require. And so I place my faith in Jesus Christ who died on the cross for my sins. I trust in Jesus Christ and his life, death and resurrection, instead of trusting in myself for my own salvation. Those are the words that I wrote. You just say that in your own words. When I was between my sophomore and junior year of high school, I heard the gospel that you just heard, and I said, I need that. I need to be made righteous. And I received Christ, and I became righteous in God's eyes. I still sin, but God looks at me as righteous because he sees Christ in me and not my sin. We're going to take communion together. Communion is a remembrance of what Jesus Christ has done for us. Here's the verse I want you to meditate on as we take communion. It says this. This is Romans 3.25. It says, For God presented Jesus as a sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God, for they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. 